This morning, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball to you. Go to 1 Samuel with me, if you would, please. Uh, chapter 30. One of these uh, mornings, it was actually uh, yesterday morning, I, I had the next psalm um, ready to go as far as preaching was concerned and got up about, uh, woke up about 3.45 yesterday and got up at about 4 and just had this passage on my mind. I, I checked to see when the last time was I preached it. I hate preaching a rerun. I just feel like I have to always prepare a new message. That's why I told you I had the next chapter ready. I don't want you to think I'm being lazy. But the Lord laid this on my heart, and uh, the more I thought about it and prayed over it, the more confident I got that it's the message I need to preach this morning. I looked back, and it was in uh, December of 2015 that I preached from this chapter. But I really feel like I'm supposed to preach this today. So if you would, look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire. And had taken the women captives that were therein, they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons were, and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, not just distressed. Distress is a strong word. It says he was greatly distressed. For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now watch this. But David encouraged himself, and the Lord is God. Uh, Brother Doug Bema, would you please uh, take us to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless the preaching this morning. Lord, thank you uh, for just the opportunity to open up your word this morning, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you laid this message uh, special on the pastor's heart this morning, that you guide him with your Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Give us what you would have for us to get out of this message today, each and every one, as you see fit. Lord, Lord uh, give the pastor utterance and uh, clarity of thought, Lord, as he uh, dives into this message, Lord. Thank you for it, and just uh, we just pray and ask that you use it. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Most all of you know the storyline here. We come to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and this is arguably one of the darkest moments in the entire life of King David. What a great man that he was, man. I mean, when you look back at his life and see all that God did with him and where God put him and the things that he accomplished, you can undoubtedly see that he was truly a great man. What I love about David is that he was, he was really a, a man's man. He was definitely a warrior. Uh, he was definitely a killer. You know, he was one of those guys you'd look up to, you'd follow into battle anywhere. But at the same time, David seemed to be able, in spite of all that he went to, to keep a very tender heart as well. He always had a care and concern for the people. Actually, when you study out David's life, you find out that his tender heart towards people actually wound up getting him in some trouble. There are some things that he should have done, in, in my opinion, and from assessing the thing, and I've studied pretty, pretty intently his life, and so there are some mistakes that David made and kind of like erring on the side of grace. You look at him and what a warrior that he was and the thing that he, things that he accomplished and yet was able to do what I've told you that I want to do. I want God to be able to make me a man that has a really tough hide but a really soft heart. David was truly that man, but when you come to 1 Samuel 30, you've got to realize he's in his late 20s, maybe 30 years old right now, and he's in that process. God's working on him and God's preparing him for what God has for him in the future. And he hits one of the darkest moments of his life in this passage. And the weird thing about it is that this, this dark moment came shortly after a great victory. He had seen God do some miraculous things. I'm pretty sure that the Lord laid this passage on my heart this morning because I feel like we got a lot of help this last week. I mean, the, the spirit in the room was great. I feel like the Lord unquestionably, and I, I saw it like I've never seen it before, 
that the Lord unquestionably guided the preacher in ways he did not know in detail what God was doing, but I knew because I'm the pastor and I'm sitting back there with some details in my mind and heart, and things that I knew, and like I wanted to like jump up there at one point in between the song and the preacher, and I was praying like, Lord, if you want me to go, I'll go, but if I'm not supposed to go, then, then I won't go. And I wasn't sure whether or not I did the right thing. I was sitting back there like waiting like, and then I said, okay, God, I'm not sure, but he already started because I didn't move, so guide him. And I watched God. I watched God guide that man when he had no idea because I hadn't said a word to him to say some things to you that you needed to hear that specific individuals, even visitors, needed to hear, and he knew nothing about it, but it was God Almighty. And I do believe not only did he greatly help me and my family like he always does, but I believe he helped our church was a blessing now you kind of know some of you newer folks i asked you to come because it's important that you know where your pastor comes from well now you know who to blame you think i'm bad but i've never said hemorrhoids he said it at least six times and a bunch of other stuff you know i mean he referred to you like people that are a pain as as hemorrhoids in the church yeah, see that's that's who trained me so it's his fault I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thankful and grateful for where I come from and who God's put in my life to help me. And thank you for being here and, and, and being a part of it. And I think God did some great stuff for us. But here's the thing. You study your Bible and you watch after every victory, after every high point, after every encouragement, guess what shows up? Points like this. Go back with me, if you would, quickly to chapter number 26. I want you to see what David had just come off of as far as a high point between him and God. David's been running from Saul for a while now, and Saul's been hunting him, and they come to the wilderness of Ziph here because Saul gets word that David's hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul comes down there with his forces and is trying to get David. And so David actually talks to God and figures out what to do. And in verse number 8 he says, Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. So what David did in Psalm 26 verse 8 David goes out there, he arises, he comes down, Saul's pitched in the camp, and they're watching from a, from a hill or some good vantage point where they can see Saul and his men, and they can't be seen, and they're, they're doing a little bit of scouting there. They're, they're spying, they're watching. And so David and Abishai sneak down into the camp there where Saul's at, and they're tiptoeing through, and God sets this thing up. I mean, literally a miracle happens. And while they're down in here, Saul's laying right there sleeping and they're standing over Saul. Abishai says, look, God delivered him into your hands. You know why? You'll see in the passage, a miraculous sleep from God had come over, not over, not over Saul only, but over all those soldiers that he had with him laying outside. They didn't, not one of them woke up with David and Abishai sneaking through there. It was, re it was really a miracle from God. That, that's kind of cool. Hey, listen, don't let anybody make fun of you for believing in miracles of the Bible. Everybody believes in a miracle. I, I, it cracks me up all the time, people that believe in evolution. Fine, it's a free country, believe what you want. That ain't a miracle. <laughs> You're just saying it was a miracle without any author. <laughs> yes, I believe in miracles from God. I think you, the fact that you're alive today is a miracle. Sitting there talking to the, the eye doctor this week, and he was talking to me about uh, my daughter and, and how like, she has a, a, a condition called amblyopia. And he said, it looks like it's improving. It's where the, the, the part of the brain doesn't recognize the eye. There's nothing wrong with the eye, but the brain doesn't recognize it. And he said, actually, it looks like there's improvement. He said, what the brain will do is it'll start, it'll start workarounds. It'll start sending nerves and nerve endings and all that stuff, and it'll find other pathways to, to get the same thing done. And he said, looks like that's what's happening. I said, that's pretty miraculous, ain't it? He said, yep, God's pretty amazing. You know, all Christian people are stupid, you know. They're dumb. They're uneducated idiots. The doctor. I said, yeah, he, beat a, he built us pretty, pretty amazing. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe in miracles. I believe in this passage right here. God was working a miracle for David. And so they're down there and they're hovering over the enemy. And Abishai says to David, God delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once. And I will not smite him a second time. He said, I'll kill that, I'll kill that sucker right now. And I won't have to hit him twice. I'll hit him right the first time and he'll be dead. 
And David said to Abishai, now watch this, look at the character of this man. David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, bolster, and they got them away, and no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awaked. For they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Would you call that a victory for David? <laughs> I mean, he was tempted with an opportunity to, to destroy his enemy. He was successful in making the decision God wanted him to make and in leading his men the right way. He didn't find an excuse like, well, I didn't kill him, Abishai did. No excuses at all. He said, don't touch him. God anointed him. I don't care if you like him or not. God put him in the position God put him in. And when God's done with him, God will get him out. Don't touch the man. Grab the stuff and let's go. Look at these guys. Man, if that was me, I would have been like pouring water on their faces, you know, kick them a couple times in the ribs. You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that be a lot of fun if you just felt like, man, God put him to sleep real good. He gets up there on the hill and he calls down to him. He starts mocking the general saying, you didn't keep your, king, your captain safe. And Saul repents. Saul says, you're a better man than I am. You're right. God's going to do what God's going to do with you. And they, Saul gets all his armies and takes off at the end of the chapter. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day at the hand of Saul, by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So, so shall I escape out of the land. What in the world? What happens, David? God just did something miraculous for you. You saw God do it. You made the right decisions. Everything's going great. Your enemy says, hey, listen, I know you're the guy. I know God's going to bless you. Out of his own mouth, you get confirmation from God that you're doing the right things, that you're the next king of Israel. I mean, a true miracle just took place. What a victory. Come on, David, remember the giant? <laughs> you killed the giant. Nobody else could. You remember the lion and the bear? You killed them both. Nobody else in the kingdom did that. The whole nation is talking about you, David. Everybody recognizes who you are. God has been sending you a force of men, 600 men strong, that are good men and that are valiant men. God is obviously preparing you for the future. God's working. God's doing some great things. Don't give up now. And yet something in David's head just snapped. You know why that encourages me? <laughs> because I cannot always explain to you why I make some of the mistakes I make. I can't always explain to you why I get discouraged like I do sometimes and at the timing in which I get discouraged, it doesn't always make sense. You would think usually when you see something greater, when you're on a mountaintop or when a great experience happens or when the Lord shows up, it'd be like, now it's time to kick it into neutral and we can all relax. But it seems like when God really does something special for you, when God really moves in, when God really speaks to your heart, when God gives you some kind of success, it seems like the devil knows that your guard gets dropped a little bit and knows just how to hit you and discourage you to a point where now all of a sudden you're making decisions with no consultation of God whatsoever. In chapter 27, his mind just said something to him. His heart said something to him. And he just and he saw it so clear in the moment. It, it wasn't even a matter of discussion for him. He said, I'm going to die by the hand of Saul. I know exactly what to do. I'm going down to the Philistines. I'm going to get with God's people because down there, Saul won't bother me anymore because I'm not going to make it. Where did that come from? What happened with this discouragement is it set him up for one of his biggest failures. Because when he gets down into Ziklag, he ain't where he's supposed to be. He's actually siding with the enemies of God's people. 
And what winds up happening down in Ziklag is that he's there and Achish, the king of Gath, takes him in and everything's great and they're going out to battle against Israel. Now listen to me. God is just about to end Saul. Exactly the way David told Abishai might be one of the possibilities he was going to go into battle and perish. Out of David's own mouth, his heart, his mind, his spirit, his walk with the Lord told him what was going to happen. He knew what was coming. He knew what God could do. And what he didn't realize is that four or five chapters later, God was going to do it. God was just about to give David the throne over Judah. He was just about to have a major breakthrough in his walk with God and in his life and in God moving him forward. And right at that moment, he makes one of the biggest mistakes of his life. And he leads his men into a position that they had no business being in. Achish is getting ready to go out to battle against Saul, and David's like, we're with you. And Achish turns, the other, the other lords of the Philistines turn on Achish and on David and say, what are you doing bringing him with us? Don't you know that when we get down to the battle, he's going to turn on us and help Saul wipe us out to get in good graces with Saul? That was not David's intent. David was actually offended that they would doubt him. So David had himself now in a position where he was against God's people, working against the work of God and the will of God and all that God was doing because he was in a backslidden state which hit him out of nowhere with no explanation other than his heart just cracked in the moment. He didn't even get what was going on. Well, what's your problem? Listen, I was thinking about this this morning. I have so much to be thankful for. Can you forgive me for a second? I'm not bragging. I absolutely love my house. Do not rearrange my living room. I got my spot. You understand what I'm saying? Like, that's where I need to sit. The only thing I don't like about Brother Peacock being here is anytime we go out, he has to sit with his back to the room. So I walk up to the table, and I go, go ahead. And I let him sit down first, and then I, I, I don't like, I, I know where I like to sit. You understand what I'm saying? But I respect him, and he's the only man on the planet that I would just give that spot to, and then I would sit with him. I trust him, so he's watching, and we're good, right? He's a cop, or used to be, or still has it in him. I got my spot. You understand what I'm saying? I, I love my, my couch. I don't care what kind of couch you got. I like my couch. There's two different adjustments. The feet go up, and then the headrest behind adjusts, and it gets to just the right spot with the right lean. It's all perfect. I can still drink my root beer Zevia after dinner, so I don't eat any ice cream once in a m month or so. Right? And it's like perfect. I don't spill all over myself, but I'm laid back. It's just like chill zone. You get what I'm saying? I, I like my bedroom. I like my bed. I got the perfect pillow. No, really. It's, it's awesome. It's over $100, it was given to me by my uncle, and it's perfect. He works at ABC Warehouse, and they sell this stuff, and he just gave me one. I was like, yes, this is great. I finally found the perfect pillow. You know how hard it is to find the perfect pillow? Yeah. Pillows are terrible. You understand what I'm saying? Makes or breaks the night, you know? And I mean, I'm not like the my pillow guy or nothing, but I'm just telling you, I like my pillow. I like my blanket. Do not make fun of me. I don't care what you say. Indians wore blankets, and they'll scalp you. I like my dog. Her dog's become my dog because my dog's gone because my dog kept trying to kill her dog and I had to get rid of my dog, who Brian now has my dog, but her dog is actually growing on me and I love my dog. I actually let it sit on the couch with me. I'm getting old. I even let it jump in the bed. Don't tell anybody. I love my wife. God gave me a great woman. No, we're not perfect. You ever think about divorce? No, but we have thought about murder. <laughs> I love my wife. I love my kids. People say to me all the time, you want a boy? No. No, I'm not pretending. We tried for a boy, obviously. And once we got the four, we were like, you can have it. We're good. And I wouldn't change it now if I could. I'm a girl dad and proud of it. I love my church. No, look, really, I don't want to pastor any other church. I, love, I like that pulpit. I like that platform, and I like the way that pulpit's built. I love that office. It's, it's my office. 
swords hanging on the wall, shields hanging on the wall. It's actually a sheep, but people think it's a wolf when they look at it hanging on the wall. I just, folks, what I'm trying to tell you is I, I got a lot to be thankful for. It doesn't make any sense sometimes why I get like I get. And out of the blue, something will hit you, and it just, and it usually happens after a victory. Now David's made this decision, and he's having to live with the decision because while he was gone, going out to this battle, somebody turns on him. Somebody he didn't think would turn on him. So things are going from bad to worse for David, and his heart is broken. What's going on here? So he turns around and heads back to Ziklag where his guys are at. And guess what he finds out when he gets to Ziklag? While I was gone with my men, some people came in and stole all the women and children. And then the Bible says that the men, his men, his guys, you understand what I'm saying? They're all running for their life. There's a bond there between him and those men. Those are guys that literally would die for him. Guys that would have gotten in trouble with God for him. With God. I'll kill Saul because he's trying to hunt you down. Don't you know God's going to be mad at you? I don't care. I'll kill him. They're speaking about stoning him. And the Bible says those men are weeping till they have no more power to weep. I'm talking about crushed. But in all that, God was doing something. Here's the weird thing about God. He gives you mountaintops. He gives you encouragement on purpose when you need it. And then he allows those valleys. They are part of the Christian life. Because it's in the moments of ziklag, there's lessons that you and I can learn that actually enable us to sit on the throne that God has for us to get to the next step in our Christian life. God purposefully allowed David to make the decisions he was making and to wind up in the position he was in because there were some things that David need to get, needed to get out of this and some working that God was going to do in and through it all that without these problems, God couldn't have got there with him. Look at verse number 6. And David was greatly distressed for the people spake a stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now watch. Back in Psalm 30, 1 Samuel 30, excuse me. But David encouraged himself, the end of verse 6, in the Lord his God. You know what comes out of these kind of moments? Real revival. We talk about come to the revival. I've stopped calling it a revival as much as I can. I know it's a habit we get into, but it's a special meeting. We don't usually do this these days, so please come because we're hoping you get fed. But folks, really, like he said when he was here, it's not his job to bring revival in his pocket. You know, come preach. We're going to have a revival with the preacher. Like, wow, no pressure. Like, all the pressure's on me, right? That's what he, remember him saying that? I don't know how many of you remember that comment. Like, no pressure. He was saying, like, you call it a revival, but really, folks, revival is not on the preacher. It's not his job to bring revival in his back pocket. It doesn't rise or fall based on the quality of the preaching. It's, a, it's amazing to have, in my opinion, the best preachers in this country come to this church to preach for us. I do my best to find the best and get them here. I think you're worth it. I want you to hear from the best. But it is not his job to bring revival in his back pocket. It is your job and my job to recognize that we have to want God if we're going to have revival. David in that moment had nowhere to turn but to God. And that's one of the blessings of Ziklag. Why? Because he had nowhere else to go. He, could, he couldn't whoop 600 of those guys. I mean, with the guys that he had, more than likely a bunch of the guys he had could have whooped him. I mean, for sure he couldn't have taken two or three of them at once. These guys are train killers. These guys are outlaws. These guys are roughnecks. These guys are in debt, distressed, and discontented. These guys are living in the wilderness and running for their lives. These men are survivalists and soldiers. These are like the Navy SEALs of their day. And he's their captain. There's no way he could have whooped them all. He was beyond his own capabilities and his own mistakes, his own failure, his own heart. Cracked under the pressure at a time when it shouldn't have cracked. 
and he made a decision he shouldn't have made. And now as a result, the men want to kill him. His wives are gone. The children are gone. Their wives are gone. Their children are gone. His responsibility was not only his own family, but the families of the men that followed him. He's supposed to, as a leader, as a captain, as a pastor, as a preacher, he's supposed to be looking at more than just tunnel vision. He's supposed to see the fallout of his actions. And David was not so stupid that he didn't recognize his mistake. And so on top of all that's going on and his loneliness and the fact that they're all wanting to kill him, I guarantee you, knowing this man and what I've studied of this man, he is on his face before God recognizing, I messed this up. And as a result of my failure, we're in this position. And you know what most Christians do when they get to that point? They quit. You know, most Christians just quit when their church members turn on them. <laughs> Mom and Dad, can you help me? You need to teach your kids church is not about your social life. Amen. We need to train this next generation instead of creating our own headaches 20 years from now. We need to teach this next generation what we're here for. Are you getting fed when you go to church? Is the Bible being preached? Are you getting something from God? Did God speak to your heart? Are you learning your Bible? Yes, that even applies to the youth group and below. We need to be teaching them from the beginning to be charitable Christians, to forgive, to move forward, to let it go. Listen, people will turn on you. Even some men that love you and would die for you will turn on you if the circumstances are right. That is human nature. Why did the men turn on them? The passage tells you they were greatly distressed because their soul was grieved. My preacher said years ago when somebody acts out of character, it's because they're under pressure. And as we live together, listen, we are not, we're not here for this su- just this Sunday, right? Aren't we doing something more with our lives? Why do we have nurseries? Why do we have Sunday schools? Why do we have youth group? Why are we preaching through the Bible methodically like we do and faithfully like we do? Interesting passages and discouraging passages. It doesn't matter. We're trying to invest in something. We are doing something here. We are building a future together. We're trying to serve God. We're trying to raise our families. We're trying to grow in our marriages. We're trying to see souls saved. Don't you want to reach your neighbors? Don't you care about your family members? Hey, listen, we're trying to get something done with our lives doesn't happen overnight and as people stay together and live their life together and go through one day at a time together they have good times and bad times they have ups and they have downs and sometimes when some of your church family is down they will hurt you your friends will hurt you church ain't about your friends I used to get paranoid about it when somebody was offended I mean it used to just keep me up at night you know what I've learned? I, I think the Lord's taught me. Well, someone's so offended because they said nobody's nice to them at church. You know what I do? Nothing. Preacher, so-and-so, I think they're upset with me because I... So what? Let them get over it. And if they don't get over it, they ain't going to ruin my day. We got, we got a lot of other people here that want to be here. You ever notice the people like, nobody's my friend? You ever notice how... Many other friends they have. But you're the problem, you know. Yeah, you don't have any other friends around here. He's not the problem. Get over it. Why? Because people are people, folks. They're going to discourage you. You can't blame your walk with Jesus Christ on somebody else's behavior. You have to say, listen, God, these guys are going to kill me. And yes, it's even my fault they're going to kill me. But I still have a God in heaven. He had a revival at Ziklag. He had a revival between him and God in his darkest moment of his life. It's a good thing about your dark times. They turn you back to God. They get you serious about your walk with Jesus Christ. They get you back on your face again. And he turns to God in this dark moment because of his personal distress and because of the potential disaster in front of him. It could have gotten worse. So before he does anything, he falls on his face and gets a hold of God. That's one of the benefits of Ziklag in your life. Why, after we had such a great week, or the Lord dealt with me and I got serious about God again, I'm almost 100% sure some of you made some decisions this last week. I ain't never seen the altars as full as I've seen them lately around here. 
and the altar calls, like, we're doing, I mean, there's like no pressure. And you're just coming. I guarantee you you're making decisions. And I guarantee you what comes after those decisions is a ziklag. I mean, if it did for Elijah, who do you think you are? If John the Baptist doubted in prison, who do you think you are? If David doubted, who do you think you are? He says all this faith in God in chapter 26. And by chapter 27, he forgot everything he said in chapter 26. He lost his faith in God. That fast. Revival came out of this. Notice something else. Look at his reorientation in verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, to Himelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David, and David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them. And without fail, recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where they which were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint they could not go over the brook Bezor. By the way, you know where that brook runs through? The Gaza Strip. They're in the southwest of Judah. That land over there, according to the Bible historically, that's Judah's land. You, you know, you know you, if you doubt God or whether or not there is a God, I challenge your common sense. Just I'm not, I'm not being a jerk. I, I'm challenging your common sense for a second. Why is a tiny little piece of land just a couple miles it's nothing. Got the attention of the entire world when Ukraine can't get the same level of attention and the same level of resistance and the same level of anger. You, you guys know what's been going on on the African continent for a long, long time? Talk about genocides. Talk about human corruption. Talk about all kinds of sins against humanity. Why is it that, why is it this one little tiny piece of dirt gets the whole world's attention if this book is something to be laughed at and mocked? This thing's telling you, been telling you a long time it's going to happen. There's something about that property over there. Because it's God's. They hate that. They hate God. That's the problem. Anyways. Notice in verse 7, David gets reoriented. The first thing David does after his revival, after he encourages himself in God, is he gets back to prayer. Now, now hang on a minute. Saul packs up his guys and leaves, right? That might be a moment to say, okay, God, now, now what's next? Right? The pressure's off. I got a minute to pray. Where do we go now and what do I do next? That's not the time to just go making decisions. Crazy decisions. Life-changing decisions. Because something snaps in your head. But this case, the wife and kids are gone. The enemy invaded and took him away. I, I, my, my advice to David would be like, hey man, it ain't praying time. Okay? Not trying to be, you know, unspiritual here, but the women and children are gone. No, I don't need to pray about what to do. If there's, if there's horse, you know, prints there and I can follow prints and they took my wife and kids, I'm not going to be like, Lord, should I go defend my family or not? Somebody breaks into my house, you know, I hear the glass shatter and the alarms going off and all that stuff. I'm not going to be like, Lord, should I grab the AR or should I grab the SIG or should I grab the 357 and should I do something about this? Like, no, I ain't praying time. Sorry about that. It's time to be Rambo, Lord willing, you know, and not, hopefully I'm not hiding in the corner, you know, wetting my pants. Get him, honey, get him. Are they still there? Call the police. I would just end it myself after that. I could never look at her in the face again. He stops to pray. He says, bring the hither the ephod. Lord, what do we do now? He got himself reoriented. You know what's good for you about ziklags, about painful moments? It helps you get things back in focus like you're supposed to. And that is getting direction from God for your life. Listen, you Christians ought not be making decisions without first consulting God. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just telling you. 
If I were you, I would pray before I took a job. I'd ask God for it. Some of you young people, you ought to be praying before you let yourself fall in love. And then once you do fall in love, you ought to keep praying. If that person ain't the one God has for you, you're a, I, you're a fool. I'm not saying it to be mean to you. I'm trying to wake you up. You're a fool to follow after some guy, girls, that, that God don't want you with, or some woman, fellas, that God's, God don't want you with. That person you're so obsessed with right now, you'll cuss at the thought of them in 20 years. You'll hate the memory. Oh, that's just, just me. I just can't live without him. Yeah, you're going to feel that same way when he's in some other woman's arms? You might want to stop and ask God what he'd have you to do. You might want to stop and consider God's advice in the decisions that you make. Before you get your nose all bent out of shape about this church and go find you a better church somewhere, you ought to stop and ask God where God wants you. Because I'm telling you, no matter where you go, this place ain't heaven. You understand that? You might love it when you first get there, but I've been around long enough to see it. It's like when they first come, oh, this church is the greatest. Well, give it six months. Give it a year. Then all of a sudden it's like... You know what blows my mind? They always get super godly when they come into church and they're offended. They sit in the pew before service. Everybody else is like, hi, how you doing? Good, and they're going to see just going to read the word of God because nobody around here likes me and I just don't get anything out of it because the Philly people is just... <coughs> now don't panic if you sit there and you're reading your Bible. I'm not assuming you're being an idiot, okay? But I've seen people that I know are offended and have made a point that they're offended and they come in and just get in their pew and they read their Bible before we start. You can do that at home. Yeah. We're not impressed with how spiritual you are. <laughs> Amen. You ought to be considering God before you get mad and leave the church. You got to get reoriented. And it's the hard times that cause us to do that. He returns to prayer. And in verses 8 through 10, he renews his faith in God because he says, Lord, shall I pursue? And God says, yes, pursue. And so what he does is he pursues. How do you know his faith in God is renewed? Because this time when God said it, David did it because David believed what God said. And folks, I'm telling you, every single time, that's what it boils down to, is believing what God said. Why do you think there's such an attack on the Bible? Because the devil don't want you believing this book and understanding that God wrote it, and it's a supernatural book. The only thing you can be guaranteed of to put your eyes on that's perfect and miraculous in this lifetime is the book I'm holding right here in my hands. That's all you got. People don't believe that. You know that, right? People don't believe the Bible. It's because they're uneducated about it. Yeah. I love it, man. All the time I run into it. Well, I, you know, I, I don't believe the Bible. Yeah, have you ever read it? Yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible. Oh, yeah? Cover to cover? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet you have, you lying dog. I'll say, well, turn to Second Maccabees. <laughs> you ain't never read it. Listen to me, anybody, anybody that's honest, that's honest, if you'll say to God, God, would you show me whether or not this, if you're there, would you show me whether or not this book is your book? And then you open it up and see what happens. You know what, the devil don't want you to believe that book. I've been through the process, I don't have to prove it to you. I'll be happy to help you, but I don't have to prove it to you. This thing is miraculous. There's scientific facts in this book that were written down while the world made fun of it before science ever figured it out. Modern day science is still playing catch up to the Bible. I'm a man of science, <laughs> falsely so called. Listen to me, man. Listen to me. It's observable and repeatable to be truly scientific, right? Okay, you saw the Big Bang. And we've repeated it. Oh, so you mean it's faith? 100% faith. 
Well, I got faith in this. I wasn't there when it was originally written. I wasn't there when God created it. But my faith is in this book. And then the more you study this book and the more you try to disprove it, the more it shows itself to be the perfect, inerrant, infallible, almighty words of God. Now, you guys know that, don't you? So why don't you believe it when God talks to you? God tells you to do something. Why don't you just do it? You know what the hard times in your life do? They cause you to reorient yourself. Get back on your knees in prayer and get back in that Bible and begin to say, God, if you show me what you want me to do out of that book, I'll do what you said because you said to do it. And folks, I'm telling you, when you just do what he says to do because he said to do it, it'll work out for you. I'm telling you, it'll work out for you. God tells you parents to discipline your kids. It doesn't work. You remember calling Mike Feach? In tears. Like, this kid, he's a spanker. And it ain't working. He said, just keep doing what God said to do and it'll work. We were at his house one time and she was acting the fool, man. I mean, she was just, and he has a big old beard and deep voice, you know. He grabbed her like that and picked her up. He said, hey. She looked at him. He said, you want me to beat your brains out with a stick? <laughs> he put her down and she was perfect. <laughs> I hated him that day. <laughs> you know what? We kept doing what God told us to do. We didn't beat her brains out with a stick, okay? He wouldn't either. He's such a grandpa, it's not even funny. But we kept doing what God said to do. And all of a sudden, one day, the kids are, the kids are smart. They're just stubborn. They eventually figure out, oh, I guess I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm just telling you, you do what God says to do because God said to do it. Why should you be here this morning? Well, because you're supposed to. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Why should you be faithful to meet together and encourage each other and fellowship and sing together when I'm gone? Because God said to get here. You know how long, you know how long uh, three services is when you got the world around you pulling at you all the time? That's a long time to go without getting together. You got to reorient yourself. Notice something else in verses 11 through 15, really interesting. They find an Egyptian, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all the verses, just tell you the story. They find an Egyptian in the field. They bring him to David. What had happened is this Egyptian had got dumped off in the field and left to die. And when they bring this man to David, the man makes a deal with David. He says, listen man, don't kill me and I'll tell you where they're at. You know what I get out of that? David being in a position where everybody's turned on him probably caused him in that moment to understand how that man was feeling in his spot where his own forces had turned on him. And now the enemy forces have showed up and he was part of the guys that went and stole their wives and children and burned everything to the ground. And he's standing there looking at the captain of that crew as 600 scary looking boys they were, boy. And here's this Egyptian three days out there without food and water about to die. And David looks at him and says, well, where's your captains? Where's everybody? Where did they, well, they left me. They abandoned me. And instead of viewing that Egyptian, you know what the Bible, you know your Bible, the Egyptians are a type of the world. Instead of viewing that Egyptian as somebody that needs to be killed, he stopped and he was able to think about what it was like when he was alone, when he was abandoned, when he didn't have nothing. And instead of taking all his frustrations with his circumstances out on a lost guy, he was able to bring that guy in and help him out. Your ziklags, your discouraging moments prepare you later to help somebody else who needs some help. Ain't it been great to see all the visitors coming to our church? Ain't it been great to see people get saved? You guys, do you guys realize what a blessing it is to be a part of a church where people are regularly getting saved? Do you remember when you were that person? Some of you only have to think back a year or two years or five years 
to remember when you weren't even saved, you were without hope and alone in this world and hungry in your soul and you didn't have any answers and you were miserable and you were discouraged and you were depressed and you were frustrated and you were scared and somebody came along with the gospel and showed you who Jesus Christ is and you learned to have a personal relationship with Almighty God and He's turned your life around. That's why it's real good for you to be in a spot like that, a real depressed spot, because when you get there, it causes you to have compassion on other people who are there. Let me get to my last point. Look down at verse number 18. It says, And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives, and there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. <laughs> you know what you've got to realize when you're in a ziklag in your life? God knows where you're at. And even though you may have suffered a lot of loss and things may look like they're hopeless, if you'll just have yourself a revival between you and God, if you'll reorient yourself back to God, if you'll realize God's wanting to use you to reconcile some other people, stop thinking of yourself all the time and reach out to somebody else that needs help, then God will bring a recovery in your life and He plans to use every bad thing that's ever happened to you for His glory and for your good. David recovered everything that he had lost. You have to remember that in the down times. You have to remember that God ain't done with you yet. And look at this. Look at verses 24 and 25. Well, no, start in verse 20 with me. David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before those other cattle and said, this is David's spoil. So they go down there and they recover everything and then they get a spoil from the war. Whose spoil is it? It says right there. It's David's, right? Okay. Now, David owns it. He's the captain. It's his war. He's the boss. He's about to be the king. But watch what he does. David came to the 200 men which were so faint they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Bezor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. So what had happened is that as they're going into this fight, 200 of the men are like, look, man, we're too exhausted. We can't keep going. And the captain says, all right, fine. If you can't keep going, stay here. We're going to dump our extra load. You watch over our stuff. And I'll take the 400 that still got all the energy that it takes to get after it. And you guys come with me. Let's go get the women and children back. So 200 of them are just sitting there. They aren't in the fight. They're just like pew warmers at church. All they're doing is faithfully sitting by the stuff, not doing anything, right? David and the 400 go, they win the battle, they come back with David's spoil. It's the king's rewards. The king owns it all. Not you. Not me. The results of this church are not Mike Reagan and not this church. This church ain't any better than any other church. We just got a great Savior. We're a bunch of sinners saved by grace trying to see God do something. And so anything good that comes out of this is God's, not yours. Like my preacher said to me one time, I'm not here to run the church. I'm here to make sure you don't. I thought that was one of the best pastoral counseling I ever received. Well, somebody has to be in charge. Well, who do you think you are? The pastor, who do you think you are? <laughs> it's, not, it's not a matter of being the boss and running the show. It's a matter of making sure that this thing is God's and it goes the direction God wants it to go. Period, the end of the discussion. When God's done with me, he'll take me out. Then what? If God ain't done yet, he'll replace me. Everybody's replaceable. But I, this ain't Mike Reagan's church. And any results of it aren't Mike Reagan's results. They're God's. So here's how the king sees it. He comes back and he salutes the men that are sitting by the stuff. Then answered all the wicked men and the men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them all to the spoil which we have recovered. Saved every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. You know, what, you know what the Bible calls those guys? Wicked. 
well, since, since they're not doing what we're doing, we're not giving them the reward. Look at the king's attitude. Then said David, Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us, and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff, they shall part alike. Now watch. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. You say, what's your point, preacher? My point is when the king comes back, he's going to divvy up some rewards. And the king don't view the spoils the way you and I view them. Well, if I'm not the preacher, it doesn't matter. Well, if I'm not the singer, it doesn't matter. I don't understand where this mindset came from. I mean, I understand it, but I don't understand it. You know what I mean? That everybody's got to be somebody, quote-unquote, in church. We don't need somebody to come in and be somebody. We just need people that want to come and just be part of us. This, I didn't come to take part, I came to take over stuff. Well, you got the wrong church and the wrong preacher. We've had plenty of that come through over the years. We don't need a rock star. We got our star, man. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's what we're all about. Don't ever underestimate the importance of just being faithful. He said, when I show up, those guys that were too exhausted to come fight with us sat there and took care of our stuff so we could leave our stuff and move faster when we went. They were backing us. They were supporting us. They were helping us out. Nobody knows their name. Nobody knows their title. Nobody sees their accomplishments. But because of them, we could do what we did. And so as a result... When I show up, I'm splitting everything I got with them because they earned it. Doing what? Just staying by the stuff. Church, listen. Don't ever underestimate the power. Please, don't ever underestimate the power or the importance of just being faithful. Things can't get done for God without faithful people. So when Ziklag hits you and you feel like a hypocrite and you don't feel like coming or you go through a phase of your Christian life where you're not feeling it at all, encourage yourself in God. Reorient your heart and mind back to prayer. Look around for somebody else to help. And remember when the king shows up, he's going to reward you just for sticking it out. So when you feel like a hypocrite going to church and you ain't feeling it, recognize you came anyways. You got there. You sat in your pew. You read your Bible anyways. You passed out a track anyways. You tried to do right anyways. And God will reward you for that because that's a big deal to God. The devil wants to use Ziklag to get you to quit. God wants to use Ziklag to set you up for whatever he's doing later, because in two short chapters, David's sitting on a throne in Judah. He had no idea what was coming or how important it was for him not to quit when he wanted to quit. Let's stand this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.